0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: As Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. The lead starts right now. Some glimmers of hope in one part of the country, as the Surgeon General warns Omicron is not done with the United States just yet, and now China is canceling a key part of the Winter Olympics because of the virus. Then it's only his first week in office, and Virginia's new governor is already in a fight with the largest school district in his state. Plus, we're getting a look at the terrifying moments when the hostage situation came to an end after an hours-long terror attack. On a Texas synagogue, the rabbi is sharing new details about what it was like inside. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Lead. I'm Poppy Harlow, in for Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with our health lead. The U.S. Surgeon General is warning the next few weeks of the pandemic will be tough. Dr. Vivek Murthy says Omicron cases have not peaked nationally, and that means this virus will keep spreading at a breakneck pace for now. A crush of COVID patients means some hospitals are running out of uninfected healthcare workers and space to treat other patients in the intensive care units. More than 156,000 people are now hospitalized with this virus. Cases in parts of the Northeast do appear to have crested a huge relief for those areas, but as our Nick Watt reports, it is far from a national trend.
0: The COVID forecast is improving, looking better. The COVID clouds are parting.
2: In New York, average daily infections plummeted
3: about 40% in just a week. The challenge is that not the, the entire country is not moving at the same pace. The Omicron wave started later in other parts of the country, so we shouldn't expect a national peak in the next com- coming days. next few weeks will be tough. Now, just
2: after Christmas nationwide, we were averaging a little over 200,000 new infections every day as Omicron took hold.
4: Is that a number that you think could reach half a million soon?
2: You know, it, it's possible, Caitlin. I, I don't think it will, but you never really can tell. Saturday, average daily infections topped 800,000 for the first time. Look at that graph. This is record territory. Previous waves, not even close.
5: We're almost there. I really do think within the next, say, three to four to five weeks, you're going to see a dramatic decline in the incidence of this, this illness. And then presumably next winter, we'll see somewhat
6: of a surge that's presumably less than this surge.
2: The CDC says the infected can end isolation, if fever-free, just five days after a positive test, when, a study of infections in the NBA suggests, more than a third are probably still infectious. Ending isolation at day five should include a negative rapid antigen test, tweeted one of the researchers. Why do all the work to identify infections... If we are going to just let them go back to work while still potentially infectious. As so many schools struggle to stay open, Virginia's new governor will ban school mask mandates. A few districts say they will defy him.
7: We will use every resource within the governor's authority to explore what we what we can do and will do in order to make sure that parents' rights are protected.
2: Meantime, China reported its first Omicron case Saturday and the Winter Olympics begin in Beijing in under three weeks. Officials announced today tickets will now not be sold to the general public. And back in this country, a high-profile positive test result. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has tested positive for COVID. We're told Mm. he is fully vaccinated and boosted, suffering very minor symptoms, working remotely. And we are told that, crucially, his last meeting with President Biden was last Wednesday. And before and after that meeting, Milley tested negative.
8: All right.
1: Nick, wishing him a speedy and full recovery. Thank you very much. Joining me live to discuss is Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Hotez, good to have you. Early results from an Israeli study show a fourth dose of the vaccine can increase antibodies, but it still might not be enough to prevent Omicron breakthrough cases. You were a loud voice on this calling for a fourth dose a month ago. Israel already offers the fourth shot for high-risk groups, healthcare workers, anyone over 60. Should the US do the same?
9: Well, I think right now it's probably too late because by the time you get that through and and get the FDA and CDC to sign off on it and by the time we get an immune response and vaccinated healthcare providers and that's the group I suggested it we try it for it'll be 3 or 4 weeks from now and by then possibly the Omicron wave will have subsided substantially and will be having to worry about the next variant. So I think at this point, the best thing to do is to let's see what the data from Israel shows. The reason I was concerned about not giving a second booster was based on information that we got from Imperial College London, showing that within a couple of months after the boost, you got a decline in effectiveness, maybe down to 30 to 40%. So the idea is you boost, get a big bump in virus neutralizing antibodies, and maybe that would help the healthcare Mm -hmm. workforce. So we'll see what the data from Israel looks like.
1: In the meantime, the CDC has updated its guidance. They did it earlier this month, advising schools in high risk areas to cancel or hold high risk sports, extracurricular activities virtually. So that would mean canceling things like football, wrestling, band, choir. Critics say this guidance is just unrealistic. It's out of touch. What do you think?
9: Well, if you remember right before Christmas, the president uh, made a pretty big push to keep schools open, and that was reinforced by the Centers for Disease Control director. I think it's tough, right? And that, and and most schools followed that advice and are trying to stay open. Although some are now having to shut down for periods because transmission is so high and teachers are getting affected. Infected. It's it's tough now to add these new guidance right in the middle of this. Especially uh, depends how long the Omicron variant uh, stays around and if it starts going down in three or four weeks, we may not have to worry as much. But I think it's going to be a tough case to make now that CDC is kind of altering, the, altering its initial plans.
1: So speaking of, of Omicron and how uh, the new research suggests that it is, quote, inherently milder than Delta for children under age five, of course, those who can't get vaccinated, the study says about 1% of kids infected with Omicron were hospitalized compared with 3% of kids who had the Delta variant. Overall, case rates and hospitalizations are at a record high, though. I wonder what you're seeing in your hospital right now with Omicron and children five and under.
9: Well, we are seeing a lot of uh, kids under five get hospitalized here in Houston. And a number of them have this condition known as bronchiolitis, which means it's not a pneumonia, meaning not deep in the lungs, but in the smaller and larger uh, airways. And I think we we are seeing quite a bit of bronchiolitis across the country right now. I think a big question is going to be, For other virus pathogens like respiratory syncytial virus that causes bronchiolitis, that will sometimes set up kids for asthma later in life and create reactive airway disease. So that's going to be an important trend uh, to follow in the coming weeks and months as well.
1: I want to share part of this CNN op-ed on families with children under the age of five. And the title is, Parents of the Youngest Kids Are Not Okay Right Now. Let me read you part of it. Quote, while COVID-19 poses risks to all of us, children... Five and older are at least eligible for vaccines and aren't seeing much of an increase in hospitalizations. But the parents of younger kids, vulnerable little ones who don't have these protections and are getting hospitalized with the virus at an alarming rate are truly in terrible situations. I speak as a journalist and parent of a child under five. Has the public health guidance left many of these families behind?
9: Well there's there's not a lot of instruction and and remember how this works so we are now that we're opening up schools for kids five and up a lot of those five and up kids have siblings under the age of five and so they're bringing home covid we're hearing about parents getting infected and then little kids getting infected so that's happening all over the place now that we don't now that vaccine mandates in the workplace have been shot down um we're gonna have parents bringing home their infections to little kids so yeah this is a this is a real concern and why i've been saying look if this during this terrible omicron wave which is so much transmission going on let's not be too uh ambitious at this point. If we need to tack on a few extra weeks in the school year as we head into the summer, that might be a, a more preferable option. But um, I, I really do have a lot of empathy and sympathy for parents right now with little kids.
1: Dr. Hotez, thank you so much as always. Thank, thank you. Well, the difference between campaigning and governing, why school districts in Virginia are telling students to wear masks despite the governor's move to end the mandate, Plus, as the drumbeat of war grows louder, we are live in Ukraine as U.S. senators are there to get eyes on the Russian threat of invasion. Topping our national lead today, several large school districts in the Commonwealth of Virginia are already pushing back against an executive order from the new governor, Governor Glenn Youngkin, making good on his campaign promise ordering all schools to allow parents to make the decision about if their child wears a mask or not in class. Fairfax and Enrico County saying no thanks, informing families Sunday night that masks will still be required for students and teachers. Or even McKen joins me. Eva, how is the... Uh, brand new governor responding to this.
8: Well, Poppy, he's resolute. The crux of the executive order, just four pages, argues masks among kids in schools provides inconsistent health benefits. Governor Yunkin maintains many children wear them improperly or are wearing cloth masks that aren't even clean. And this is to the great frustration of some parents. One telling me a mass mandate should not be a political ping pong. Schools in northern Virginia and the Richmond region saying, hey, you want kids in school? Mass are keeping them in classrooms. But Yunkin ran on this issue, so he argues the people of Virginia spoke and this increased agency for parents is what the voters wanted. Take a listen. If
7: there's one thing that hopefully everybody heard in November is it is time to listen to parents. So over the course of this week, I hope they will listen to parents because we will use every resource within the governor's authority to explore what we what we can do and will do in order to make sure that parents' rights are protected.
8: Now, this potentially could pit parents against parents and lead to confusion. When they return this week, parents could ask themselves, should they listen to the governor or listen to their school district, even though the executive order doesn't take effect until January 24th. Now, Democrats in the state say the Virginia legislature passed a law last year that requires Virginia schools to follow federal guidance that recommends masks in schools.
1: And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis imposed a similar ban on mask mandates in his state that was followed by a battle in the courts. Could that battle foreshadow what's about to happen in Virginia?
8: You know, it certainly could, Poppy. You could see the parallels between the executive orders from these two governors. Ultimately, that saga ended when DeSantis secured a political victory last November, when the state legislature agreed on a ban on school mask mandates that DeSantis then signed into law. But as you know, Virginia is no Florida. While Yunkin has a Republican majority in the Virginia House of Delegates, the state Senate is still narrowly controlled by Democrats. And this just in, we are getting a copy of his remarks that he is giving now to the Joint Assembly. And he is doubling down on this decision, saying this is a matter of individual liberty. Poppy? Eva McKen, thank you for the reporting. And things are
1: not any easier at colleges across the country, from remote classes to quarantining once back on campus. Omicron is making this semester anything but normal at the university level. Our Alexander Field talks to students about how they're faring.
4: At the start of yet another semester, the fifth now of its kind, COVID is creating even more challenges for colleges and universities across the country.
0: Challenges are really beginning to learn to live with the fact that We will have virus on campus.
4: Cornell University, hit hard by an explosion of Omicron cases in December, shut down their campus early before the holiday break. They'll start the new semester with two weeks of remote learning.
0: We recognize that we can't eradicate COVID, but we still want to limit it on campus and in particular protect vulnerable individuals.
4: Universities and colleges now making a flurry of last-minute adjustments, some adding booster requirements to vaccine mandates. Others increasing testing protocols or upgrading standards for masks. Princeton University announcing travel restrictions that will bar students from leaving the county or the township upon return to campus, then just as quickly scrapping that plan, while Yale tries a campus-wide quarantine for the start of the semester, telling students avoid local businesses, restaurants and bars, including outdoor drinking or dining. The latest attempts to manage the spread of Omicron, deflating to too many students trying to capture what's left of a fleeting college experience.
10: It seems kind of scary that it might be like a regress to what it was earlier. I spend the majority of my days just in my apartment, um, not getting like the air exercise or the social interaction that I think is necessary and healthy for um, especially college-aged people.
11: It's like really hard to like work like in your room alone on that. So I think that would be just like a big adjustment going back to that again.
4: Arizona State University says it's taking precautions amid the surge, but 2 years into the pandemic, prioritizing putting students in the classroom, tens of thousands are back already. The university president telling KTAR,
10: "Let's continue to just move forward. Let's continue to manage this virus as best we can and You know, we've got uh, lots of testing and we're using masks where we need to use masks.
4: Tools that are still helpful for keeping campuses open, for making things more normal for pandemic weary students. You can sort of see it in the way that the students, um, the way that the students seem to feel. I think, you know, they're resilient, uh, which which is great, but there's a limit
1: to some of those, some of that resiliency.
4: You could say that for all of us, it seems, Poppy. Look, amid the pandemic, we also know that some students are choosing not to go to college or not to go to college just yet. They might be waiting for the reassurance uh, that the, that they can go back fully in person. They may be putting off plans to go to college because of other family factors. Uh, yeah. But look, researchers and educators are warning that it is too soon to draw any really specific conclusions. When you look toward uh, these decreasing numbers in terms of college enrollment, they say, That could be a function of the pandemic. Too soon to tell. That could also be the continuation of pre-pandemic trends that we were seeing.
1: Okay, Alexander Field, thanks so much for the reporting. Ahead, can the U.S. decode Vladimir Putin's puzzling behavior? We'll go live to Ukraine, where the threat of invasion is real and fears are growing. Stay with us. In our world lead, Russia's drumbeat of war is growing louder, according to one U.S. official, as Russia denies any involvement in the crippling cyber attack on Ukraine and refutes a U.S. intelligence report showing Russia laid the groundwork to stir up a fake conflict in Ukraine in order to justify an invasion. The top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee told Jake Tapper the United States needs to step up.
12: Putin again smells weakness here. He knows that if he's ever going to invade Ukraine, now is the time.
1: Let's get right to CNN's Matthew Chance in Kyiv. Matthew, a group of U.S. senators flew there to meet directly with Ukrainian officials. Does that give Ukrainians a feeling of assurance tonight?
5: Yeah, I I think it does. I mean, those seven U.S. senators have been meeting with President Zelensky tonight at his presidential office, offering him sort of bipartisan support. Uh, from the US and also talking about ways in which they can deter what they call Russian aggression and perhaps look at, you know, bolstering, you know, the threat of sanctions against Russia by the United States even more if it continues this threat. And the foreign ministry told me tonight they're going to be taking, the senators are going to be taking those recommendations back to the United States with the possibility of debate or further action. There have been other measures as well from various other parties. NATO today has said that it will be Deepening its technical cooperation with Ukraine to help it fend off cyber attacks of the kind it recently endured by us uh, from a suspected you know, Russian origin. And the British government has announced within the past few hours as well that it will be stepping up its military assistance to Ukraine, offering armour piercing systems uh, that would be operational uh, on a short-range uh, basis, uh, it, which is a, a big escalation, I think a big step up uh, of what you know European powers are offering Ukraine as well in the shadow of this consistent Russian threat, Poppy.
1: Yeah, it certainly would be. Meantime, Matthew Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told our very own Fried Zakaria that Russia doesn't want months or a year-long negotiation. Do Ukrainians that you speak with feel like a diplomatic solution is still likely?
5: Uh, well, they, they hope for one. And in fact, the, the Ukrainian authorities have been pushing hard for some kind of diplomatic format in which this crisis can be resolved. In fact, you know, within the past 24 hours, President Zelensky of Ukraine has suggested a trilateral online summit between himself, President Biden and President Putin of Russia. But there's been no response from either well not from the americans but but not for crucially not from the not from the russians yet either it, it, it's not something that i think they're they're going to accept sitting down even an online table face to face with with the with the ukrainians but They certainly, uh, the Ukrainians certainly want a diplomatic solution. But of course, what they're faced with in reality is tens of thousands of Russian soldiers that are still gathered near the border of Ukraine, posing a credible threat, I think it's fair to say, Mm -hmm. of another invasion of their country.
1: Given that credible threat and, and where we are at this point, are both President Biden and Vladimir Putin essentially boxed in by the positions they've each taken?
5: You know, I I think to some extent they are certainly from 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 the Biden side. You know, he uh, is totally incapable, I think, uh, as as with every other Western official of exceeding to the Russian demands. And those demands, remember, are for an end to NATO expansion and specifically to make sure Ukraine never joins the military alliance. So there's no way those kinds of guarantees can come from the US president or from any other uh, Western official. And of course, the Russians have said they won't accept anything else. You know, no other compromises except those core demands. And so we're in this impasse at the moment where where both countries, both presidents are unable to give the other uh, what they want. Where that leads, though, isn't clear. Obviously, everyone here is bracing for the possibility uh, of some kind of Russian incursion or another Russian uh, invasion. There's a possibility that the diplomatic process could continue, even though it's an impasse at an impasse at the moment. But there's also the possibility that tensions in this region could just be you know, permanently raised. And so we're in a constant state of crisis. And I think that's the, that's the real concern now, Poppy.
1: Of course. Matthew Chance in Kyiv for us tonight. Thank you so much for the reporting. On this Martin Luther King Jr. day, the White House is trying to keep alive its fight for election reform, calling it a modern-day call for civil rights. Is that call landing on deaf ears? So stay with us. On this Martin Luther King Jr. day, the family of the late activists participated in a peace walk in Washington, D.C., trying to increase pressure on Congress to pass election reform legislation. The Senate is expected to take up that key legislation tomorrow. But even a top Democrat admits it's on life support right now. Phil Mattingly is live outside of the White House. And Phil, President Biden is not ready to give up this fight yet. And he called on Democrats to deliver the votes in a video today.
12: That's exactly right, Poppy. The president using that video to call on all Americans to help finish the unfinished work of Martin Luther King Jr. on this day of commemoration. And part of that work, according to the president, is the voting bill that the U.S. Senate will take up this week, a bill that right now very clearly does not have the votes to move forward in the United States Senate, does not have the votes to end or at least create a carve-out to the filibuster inside the Democratic caucus. But the president continuing to implore senators, particularly those who haven't committed yet, to do just that and making it a moral case. Take a listen. Will we stand against voter suppression? Yes or no. Will we stand against election subversion? Yes or no. Will we stand up for an America where everyone is guaranteed the full protections and the full promise of this nation? Yes or no. I know where I stand. and It's time for every elected official in America to make it clear where they stand. You know, it's, it's Poppy, it's worth noting that all 50 Senate Democrats are supportive of the legislation that will come up in the United States Senate. What the Senate Democratic leaders do not have the votes for right now is a carve out to the filibuster to allow them to pass it by a simple majority vote. That is the work that's been going on behind the scenes now for several weeks. At this point in time, there's no clear path forward, but obviously work is continuing.
1: Phil, before you go, House Majority Whip Congressman Jim Clyburn told Jake Tapper yesterday on State of the Union these pieces of legislation may not be dead yet, but they're, in his words, on, quote, life support. Are there last minute negotiations, anything like that happening behind the scenes that could change the outcome tomorrow?
12: You know, I was texting with one Democratic source yesterday when I saw those comments from uh, Whip Clyburn to Jake, and the source said life support is generous at this point in time, given where Senator, Senator Kirsten Cinema and Senator Joe Manchin stand on the filibuster. Specifically, they are unequivocal that they will not vote for any rules change in the Senate related to the filibuster. Uh, Senator Cinema announced <laughs> it on the Senate floor. Senator Manchin, a very lengthy statement after the President came to Capitol Hill to try and rally senators in support of just such a rule change, and that just brings the reality home for the White House. They knew it was going to be a very tall hill to climb uh, in order to try and get this across the finish line, given where Senator Cinema and Manchin have long stood on this issue. They have not moved them at all. There have been calls. There have been meetings over the course of the last several days, several weeks. Nothing has changed up to this point. That's what they're dealing with as they head into this week. An almost certain failure on this bill. All 50 Democrats support the policy. They certainly don't support any changes to the procedure, right. at least not all 50 of them, Poppy. A
1: key distinction. Phil Mattingly at the White House. Thank you very much. Let's discuss all of this with Democratic strategist Paul Begala and former White House communications director under President Trump, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Good to have you both. And Paul, let me start with you and the words of the daughter-in-law of Martin Luther King Jr., Andrea Waters King. This is what she told Politico, quote, what we have seen with President Biden is what happens when he puts the full force and power behind an issue like infrastructure. What we want to see is that same power and passion being put behind voting rights. Do you think that's fair criticism? Did President Biden put more effort into getting infrastructure passed, for example? Well, he,
7: he got infrastructure passed and that's a good thing because success can, can breed success. He is putting the full force of the presidency behind it. I think the problem for the Democrats right now is, is not that they have bad leaders, they have bad followers. OK, I read the most amazing essay today from Andy Young. You know, Andy is former mayor of Atlanta, former U.N. ambassador, and more importantly, probably the closest confidant and aide to Dr. King. He told the story. December of 1964, uh, Andy Young and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. go to see Lyndon Johnson to push him for a Voting Rights Act. Johnson says, I can't do it. I, I used all my power to get the Civil Rights Act done last year. I don't have the power to push Congress any further on voting rights. As they left the White House, Andy Young's words, he said, I asked softly, I asked uh, Dr. King what he thought. He said, I think we got to go get the president some power. And so you know what they did? They organized. These are Andy Young's words. We mobilized the churches, the universities, the labor unions, the business community, a coalition of people of goodwill. In other words, those of us who want to say voting rights, we need to get to work. I, I do think Biden is putting everything behind this, but he needs he needs better followers. So he needs all of us in the game as well.
1: I remember what he said about the power of big business in that moment in moving the hand of politicians. Alyssa, there are zero Republicans supporting these election reforms in their current state, to be clear. Listen to what the president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, said on CNN today.
6: The whole system has been fraught with partisan posture around an issue that's not partisan in nature. We're talking about protecting the rights of voters. We're talking about A similar bill that was passed in 2006 by 16, voted for by 16 sitting Republicans.
1: Alessia, do you think some Republicans share some of the blame for why this has become so political?
11: Well, I think Paul gives very interesting uh, historical context. But one thing I would kind of disagree on is that Biden's fully gone to back and gone to work to get this through. Uh, Mitt Romney over the weekend said that he's not even gotten a call from the White House on this bill. I believe fundamentally that there are at least a dozen good faith Republican senators who want to see people who should have access to voting, able to vote, able to do it easily. But we do have some different policy viewpoints than the Democrats. This is where the hard, hard work of legislating and governing comes in, where you've got to sit down and you've got to talk to people on the other side of the aisle and say, "What what are you able to get on board with? And what do you need to see from us? I think there's actually a way that there could be a transform transformational voting bill that comes out of this. But it would 100 percent require some buy in from Republicans. Otherwise, it's going to seem cheap and partisan. And that works not been done by the White House today. So just just,
1: I, I hear you on what Mitt Romney said. And he said just yesterday, right, there are more than a handful of Republicans willing to work on the Biden administration with this. But his complaint was. But I haven't gotten a call from the White House. But, I mean, Alyssa, goes both ways. No, Republicans could also reach out to the White House and say, hey, we're ready. Here's where we can meet you. No?
11: I, I totally agree, but I think that Biden kind of set this off with bad faith last week. I think that that speech he gave in Georgia went way too far. He knows that the Pat Toomey's, the Rob Portman's, the Mitt Romney's of the, of the world are nowhere near segregationists or George Wallace. They are good faith Republicans who are willing to work with him. And by the way, in Biden's inaugural address, which I thought was a phenomenal speech, one that will be remembered in the history books that we needed in a uniting moment, he said there's virtually nothing Americans can't get done when we're willing to work together. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a great moment to try to do that. And heck, let's have the conversation around MLK Day, because there are, I can tell you there are Republicans who are willing to make concessions if that if their concerns are also addressed in some ways.
1: Paul, let's talk about, you know, we're almost nearly this week. We'll hit one year in for, for the president President Biden. Marks that with bad news, a string of bad news. Election reforms on the verge of failure. Supreme Court striking down his vaccine mandate for businesses. U.S. just hit record inflation. Omicron spreading still his job approval rating 42% in the latest CNN poll of polls. How does the president hit reset and turn the tide here?
7: Yeah, terrible week, but a good year, I think. I mean, he got his Recovery Act through, which we forget about in the first 100 days or so. And it was a remarkable piece of legislation to cut child poverty in half. Uh, he wants to extend it. Congress right now hasn't been able to do so. He got a bipartisan infrastructure bill with 19 Senate Republicans on board. So, yes, he can work with Republicans. He was very successful in that. Um, but I think you're right. He needs a reset now. My own counsel to him would be, don't tie your fortune exclusively to passing bills through Congress. I know you spent 36 years there, Mr. President, but you're not a senator any longer. He has vast power on the executive level. Uh, he, I think, but my it's personal not advice, lasting. I want to see... Well, it can be. For example, the antitrust laws. Why isn't his administration going after big tech harder? Why aren't he, why isn't he getting, he could work with Republicans on that. A lot of them are as angry at Facebook and Google as, as a lot of the liberals are. So he's got, he's got vast power, but I think he's going to have to disengage from Congress because not everything he needs to do requires a law.
1: Thank you both. Good to have you, Paul, Alyssa. We'll see you very soon.
11: Thanks, Thanks so much.
1: The International Investigation into the Man Behind the Terror Attack at a Texas Synagogue. That's next. In our national lead today, the FBI confirmed it is investigating the Texas hostage standoff as a terrorism-related incident. The agency is still trying to figure out exactly why a 44-year-old British national took a rabbi and three others hostage at a Dallas-area synagogue on Saturday. As CNN's Ed Lavender reports, we're learning new details today about when the suspect arrived in the U.S. and what he did in the days before the attack.
6: The final moments capturing the escape of the hostages from inside the Beth Israel synagogue was captured by a photojournalist with CNN affiliate WFAA. The hostages are seen racing out a side door. The hostage-taker briefly appears pointing his firearm in their direction. The FBI hostage rescue team, which arrived at the scene just hours earlier, moves in. An explosive device detonates and gunfire rips through the air. Shortly after it's announced the hostages were safe and alive, the hostage taker dead. Rabbi Charlie Citrone Walker says the situation was quickly deteriorating.
10: The last hour or so of the standoff, uh, he wasn't getting what he wanted. I asked, made sure that the two gentlemen who were still with me um, that they were that they were ready to go. Uh, the exit wasn't too far away. I told them to go. I threw a chair at the gunman, and I headed for the door. And all three of us were able to get out without even a shot being fired. Law
6: enforcement officials have identified the hostage taker as 44-year-old Malik Faisal Akram. He is a British citizen. Law enforcement sources tell CNN Akram arrived legally in the United States in late December at JFK Airport in New York, eventually making his way to Texas, where he spent three nights at this Dallas homeless shelter in the days leading up to the hostage standoff. On Saturday morning, Akram showed up to the synagogue. Rabbi Walker thought he was someone who needed shelter.
10: It was during prayer um, while we were praying. And my back was turned. Uh, we face towards Jerusalem when we pray. Uh, it right, right before, uh, right before he revealed himself. But this was, you know, plenty of time in. Um, I heard a click, and it could have been anything. Uh, and it turned out that it was his gun.
6: Akram's voice could be heard on the live stream of the synagogue Sabbath services. Oh, Andrew Mark Paley is the rabbi at Temple Shalom in Dallas. Law enforcement officers brought him to the scene on Saturday. When you saw the rabbi after his ordeal, what
10: was the first thing you said to him? So I, I said, Charlie, I'm we're so glad you're you're okay. Um, we're, uh, you know, we're we're here for you. He was um, just completely overjoyed and and um, you know a little overwhelmed. And Poppy,
6: uh, tonight uh, the congregation of the Beth Israel Synagogue will come together for the first time. They're going to be holding a special service at this Methodist Church in the nearby town of Southlake. So the members of the congregation are invited to come out here tonight. This is happening here because law enforcement investigators continue uh, processing the scene there at this synagogue from what ha- synagogue from what happened over the weekend. Poppy. Yeah.
1: Ed Levandero, thank you so much for your reporting today and tonight as the news was on un- uh, uh, this weekend as the news was unfolding. Well, the world's number one men's tennis star off the court, but at the center of a political match that might sideline him for other major matches. Find out why next. In our Sports League game set match, unvaccinated tennis star Novak Djokovic has officially been deported after a dramatic week in Australia. And while the visa volley there may be over, the ball is certainly up in the air for other major upcoming tennis tournaments like the French and U.S. Opens, both tournaments with strict vaccine requirements. Scott McLean is in Djokovic's home country of Serbia, where he got a hero's welcome despite coming home empty handed.
3: Novak Djokovic arrived back in his home country of Serbia after Australian authorities cancelled his visa on public health and order grounds. The Serbian government outraged by the political intervention.
8: I think the decision is scandalous. I am disappointed
2: and I think it has shown how the rule of law functions in some other countries, i.e. how it doesn't
3: function. It's incredible. Australia's immigration minister argued that Djokovic, who is unvaccinated but sought a medical exemption to play in the open, could incite the country's anti-vaxxers. It was their final volley in a drawn-out legal grudge match that saw him detained by immigration authorities twice in a matter of weeks. Djokovic has been widely criticized for remaining unvaccinated and for breaking self-isolation in Serbia. After testing positive in December, he attended a photo shoot in person. But here in Belgrade, the tennis star doesn't appear to have lost any fans, nor has he been labelled an anti-vaxxer.
4: Everybody has their own choice. I don't think he's spreading anything, neither non-vaccination nor vaccination.
6: I think that's uh, his choice
9: and no one should be forced to be vaccinated. I myself am vaccinated, but I don't think no one should be forced to be.
3: While Serbian fans welcomed him home with open arms, Tennis fans in Melbourne welcome the end of the visa saga that has overshadowed the actual tennis. I think it was kind of dragged on a little bit too long, but it's great that we can kind of put that behind us. Djokovic has officially lost the chance to play for his 21st Grand Slam title and may be barred from Australia for the next three years.
4: Now, uh, there are some compelling reasons that uh, that may be able to be looked at, but that's all hypothetical at uh, this point. Any application will be reviewed on its merits.
3: His next Grand Slam may also be in jeopardy. France announced Monday that all professional athletes competing in the country will have to be vaccinated, with no exceptions. Now, according to Forbes, Novak Djokovic earns $30 million per year in sponsorship deals alone. And while most of his sponsors have been quiet on this whole Australia situation, Lacoste, the French clothing brand, one of his main sponsors, well, they would like to have they would like to have a word with Djokovic as soon as possible to review what happened in Australia. Now, Hmm. if Djokovic opts to skip the French Open over vaccination issues, well, his next chance at a Grand Slam would be at Wimbledon. But if he attends there, he'll have to plan to get to England plenty early in order to complete the 10-day mandatory quarantine for people who show up unvaccinated. Poppy?
1: Scott McLean, I think a lot to come on this front in Belgrade, Serbia for us tonight. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you watching this special edition of The Lead. I'm Poppy Harlow in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in this situation.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.